Blog Talk Radio. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Will a strong and united America still be a force for freedom and prosperity around the world? America has created the longest peacetime economic expansion in our history. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Good common sense and sound judgment of the American people and their essential love of justice. Hi, welcome to the Kudzu Vine for August 14th, 2022. I'm your host, David McLaughlin. Joining me as always, welcome Tim Shifflin. Good evening, sir. All right, it'll be just you and I tonight. Catherine's traveling back from out of state, and so um, she's got the night off, and so it's going to be uh, you and I, and in about 20 minutes, we're going to talk to Alex Diaz of Nevada, and um, he's going to tell us all about Silver State politics. Also, he is a Latino voter, and we're going to have a little bit of conversation about the Latino vote, um, since that has been such a um, huge constituency in America, really, and, and such an important vote in so many states, Nevada with notwithstanding. Um, But until then, we're going to start off with the massive political topic of the week. Um, Early in the week, I don't know if it was Monday, Tuesday, but early in the week, um, the FBI raided Mar-a-Lago, probably went in with search warrants, probably very politely. I I don't know that this was, you know, knocked the door down and, and tear gas. They went in, and they were looking for we assumed documents, I think even early on we knew it was documents. And then um, we didn't know exactly what. And then more and more unfolded throughout the week. But, Tim, let's just start there. Um, early in the week, we know there was a raid on Mar-a-Lago. Tell me what your initial thoughts were when you were watching these reports. Well, I would, I would not call it a raid. And uh, we had a heads up they were going in right before they went in because they had informed uh, Trump's attorneys that they were going to visit and, and conduct a search. It, it, it was a, they were going to execute a search warrant. That's what they did. A raid is a surprise thing where you really do knock the doors down and bust up the whiskey stills and and take all the gangsters into custody and that sort of thing like you do in a G-Man movie. Uh, this this thing, uh, you know, the, it was executed very quietly, politely, walked in, and they only searched uh, like Trump's office his post-presidential office, which is there, and uh, a couple of storage rooms um, off of it. They apparently knew right where to go and exactly what they were looking for um, as a pretext to this. Um, the... Department of Justice had signed off on it. The Attorney General, after after seeing everything, had had signed off on it and authorized it. Of course, you know they had to take it to a federal judge to get their warrant, and the judge saw um, the 
preponderance of evidence that they were presenting for the reasons they were doing this and was thoroughly convinced, I believe, according to the law, that a there was a distinct possibility of a crime um, having been committed there at Mar-a-Lago. And that's why the search warrant was executed and uh, that then we started hearing the stuff that that you were talking about, the stuff trickling out, and you can take it back up from there. Yes, and Tim, I don't even know if you knew the little blip that happened, uh, but technical difficulties hit, and I think you just covered it right through, which was awesome. Um, I know I'm letting Paul know how the sausage is made, but I was just so impressed by that. Um, Well, so, you know, they, they conduct this, and Immediately, so many of the um, Republican loyalists, I guess at first they kind of didn't know what to think, but quickly they came to his defense. Um, I think Democrats were just like, we don't know what to think, but we'll believe about anything because this guy has shown no boundaries in what he might do. Um, but you know, the FBI rated for some documents, um, the speculation, you know, who knew what it was, I mean – it, honestly, if they said he took the White House silverware and he was going to post it on eBay, I just wouldn't be shocked at this point. But I just had no idea what it ended up being, nuclear-related um, well, documentation. Um, well, Tim, kind of what were your initial thoughts on what it might be? Well, I didn't know, but stuff started trickling out. I just thought Trump had a bunch of stuff that went back to the National Archives that he hadn't given up yet. I didn't know about all this top secret stuff. And by the way, let me add here that, you know, it is the policy of of the FBI, the Department of Justice, to try to keep things, you know, pretty pretty quiet when they're doing stuff like this, even though the news media knew, you know, something was up. They didn't know exactly what was going on there, and, you know, they stayed quiet about it. It was Donald Trump who made it public and went to running his mouth so he could control the narrative. That's, he he filled in all the blanks that uh, all these people came to his defense, and it went on that way for a couple of days until the attorney general stepped forward and said, you know what, I'm going to... Uh, Ask the courts if we can make um, this, um, you know, our search warrant um, public and and what we found. And what they did find was uh, five sets of top secret documents, three sets of secret documents, three sets of confidential documents. In that five sets was one set top secret compartmental, which is above top secret. This stuff is so sensitive that it could, oh, just terribly damage the nation. We're talking about probably secret surveillance photos from the sky of of other countries' military installations, perhaps uh, reports of covert activities uh, by, by our you know, security agencies uh, around the world. That, you know, really, really, really 
top secret stuff that just could never come out there. This particular um, document or series of documents was so sensitive that the FBI had to remove them, not look at the contents, remove them to a special facility to store them. Donald Trump was not supposed to have had them in that White House just laying around and then loaded them down there. I mean, dude, there might be, this is one of those series of documents that maybe seven or eight people in the whole country even knows exist. And uh, I noticed over the course of the week that, uh, you, you know, the, the excuses, David, that he and his followers uh, or enablers have, have put out there is enough to make you heads, even though they've quietened down lately. Uh, just think about some of the stuff they've said. Like, well, my, one of my personal favorites, I saw it on Fox the other night. The guy said, well, he didn't pack the stuff when they left the White House, so the question is, who did pack it? Well, you know what? No, that that's not the question. That's that that that's not even close. Um, yeah, you, you, jump in whenever you want to. That was Sean Duffy, former Wisconsin yeah. congressman, that said yeah. that, and he acted like it was the Trump sock drawer in the East Room. <laughs> um, you know, I mean, this is just. I mean, unfathomable that the nuclear documents would get, you know, put in with your personal effects. I mean, I'll be honest. When I first heard, I thought, you know, maybe he took some stuff that was like they were gifts to the country, but he thought they were gifts to them. I no, thought no, that no. might have got mixed no. up. And then he Dude. might have taken, you know, uh, historical artifacts from the White House. Because here's the thing. John, I want to know what, what did Donald Trump want with those because to me – Donald Trump wants to, A, make money for Donald Trump, and Donald Trump wants to, B, make Donald Trump look good and seem important. Now, I'm not sure what these nuclear documents do to meet goal A or B, or is there an ulterior you know, goal C? I don't know about because that is what I'm wondering. You, you know, he can't say, well, we didn't know we had them. These 11 – sets of documents that I just mentioned, total 27 boxes full of material. It's not like they're going to be hidden in a corner as an oversight. 27 boxes? I assume we're talking about these legal boxes. You've seen those. Uh, they're, they're pretty good size. Uh, 27 boxes of them. No, those were those had to be taken out on purpose. Here's one of my favorites. He said, you know, as president, I could routinely declassify anything. Well, well no, no, that no, you can't. That's that's not. There's a process you have to go through. You can't just look at something like you're the pope and say, I declassify you in my name or, or something like that. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, and then in the same paragraph, almost, the man said, the FBI planted the documents. Okay, 
you're declassifying documents, and then the FBI plants them. How does that work, David? Um, I, I, I don't know. I mean, this whole thing about, you know, like the documents were just sorted in with, you know, random stuff at the White House. I mean, throughout my teaching career, I've made extra copies at times of, you know, work material sheets for the students. And it's like, oh, mm-hmm. I'll make, you know, I needed 19 and I made 20. Or I made me a copy to read off of and it didn't get filled out. And I'll save those copies and I have a filing system. They're making, some of these Republican defenders make it sound like I have a more organized program for extra worksheets for reading or computer science than the United States government has for nuclear documents, which is just unfathomable because we know the Army is organized, and that's who's in charge of this stuff is the armed forces. And, and, And let's go back to that, the FBI planted the documents nonsense. I mean, like I said, which ones? The ones he declassified, not to mention. Um, there are security cameras all over that place down there. His lawyer was there while it was going on. Uh, are, are are they are they telling me that? And if the FBI planted it, who authorized the FBI to do that? I mean, it's just craziness. And of course, it's it it a little cottage industry sprang up. Uh. With the Republicans, uh, some of the folks like our own esteemed congresswoman uh, was immediately out with a line of defund the FBI T-shirts and hats, at least, those two things. I saw them. Uh, She advertised them on her website uh, for sale. And and, uh, unfortunately, because of that mouthing, we saw later in the week, 42-year-old man tried to enter the FBI headquarters uh, in Cincinnati, armed with uh, a long rifle and a nail gun, which he started firing uh, before he was chased away and uh, cornered in a cornfield about 20 miles away and ultimately lost his life, this poor guy. Uh, who, by the way, had been at the Capitol. He he believed all that nonsense Trump and them were saying, and as a result, he lost his life. That brings up another thing. These people need to stop with this craziness because it provokes violence. Uh, this stuff of hollering Gestapo tactics. And, and members of Congress, members of the U.S. Senate said that. Um, politicizing, weaponizing the Department of Justice. Uh, um, They're publishing the names of FBI agents that took part in it. They're publishing the name of the judge who signed that warrant, and there's people online saying, that ain't enough. Who's his family? Where are they at? Just, you know, it's... uh, Everything is a hoax, according to Trump, and the Democrats conducted it. They, they've got to, they've got to stop this stuff. And I just don't know if they will or where it stops. Do you? Oh, I don't, I don't know. And there's so many things to cover. Let's start off with this. 
you know, blamed the FBI, and it was this FBI plot, you know, if it was the, you know, the Democratic Party that masterminded it. That means that the FBI director, Christopher Wray, had to go along with it. Right. If I'm not mistaken, um, when James Comey was pushed out, Donald Trump chose, hired, right. pushed, promoted Christopher Wray. That means right. Republican appointee, not George W. Bush, Donald Trump, Republican appointee, Christopher Wray, is in charge of the FBI right. and executed that. So that's a right. huge problem in this theory. Now, a second thing, or it tells you that even his own supporters, if you suppose this nonsense is right, <laughs> if, if I don't support him anymore, um, or can't defend him at all because of what he did is highly illegal, bordering on you know, you know, the Espionage Act. Now, let's get into right. another thing, this publishing of the names and all. This wasn't on some message board on 4chan or his nonsense suit truth social or whatever. This wasn't on social media. This was on Breitbart, who purports to be a legitimate news source, which this goes against all journalistic, you know, journalistic ethics. Yet Breitbart pub, you know, published these FBI agents' names. So I right. really you – know, that's – Highly suspected. It seems like, you know, this, and we're not going to really discuss the Alex Jones trial, but it seems like these FBI agents could, and their families could possibly bring a lawsuit against Breitbart. Yeah. So my question is, is we, 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 we know that the, the type of work these people do, the FBI, how can they now, those people who have been named, conduct their jobs? In safety, how can they be sure that their families are even safe? This is awful that they would do such a thing. Breitbart should be sued, you're right, for every dime they've got. Because that, that's not journalism. It's yellow journalism. It's the worst kind of journalism. I don't even want to call Breitbart journalism because they're a white nationalist side. And I call him a white nationalist side because Steve Bannon, who ran Breitbart, he said Breitbart is a white nationalist side. Uh, so that there's a strike against them before they ever start in my book. But to, but to do something like this to FBI agents, uh, it, it just goes back to Trump is just not going to take the blame for anything. He's going to... Uh, matter of fact, see if he can take advantage of this uh, electorally. And I think early in the week he was. But as this stuff has started coming out about how serious this, these documents are, some people have started to quieten down just a little bit. Uh, David, look, I, you and I know that he has millions of people who follow him who absolutely will not abandon him no matter what he has said, done, any of that. If it is just blatantly break the law, which apparently this is, boy, uh, they, they're still going to be right with him. You see him on social media, and <laughs> you see you see him even in media outlets, uh, 
who are just going to bat defending him constantly. And uh, I get back to the thing that we have to defeat them at the polls because it just seems as long as Donald Trump is around, this this just isn't going to end. This this guy don't just push the envelope. He he tears it in half. He he attempts to break the country with unprecedented things that we would have never even dreamed of a president doing this. My goodness. Yeah, and remember the key phrase on Breitbart being a journalistic source is they purport to be. Um, yeah. Know, that, that, they to want be. to claim to be it, so you got to act like it, and they're not acting like it. Um, right. But I want to talk about another a defense. Now, Donald Trump got a lot of attention for his truth social. He, he cranked it up and um, put some stuff out that got reposted other places. Um, but one of them was saying that you know Barack Obama took 30,000 documents when he left the presidency. And then, of course, the National Archives, a bunch of librarians had to come out and and probably just defend the process and refute Donald Trump as much as Mm -hmm. becoming a defense of Barack Obama. Um, Mm -hmm. And that they took charge of – they took charge, not Barack Obama and the Obama family. Mm -hmm. They took charge of these documents, and they're holding the documents until the Obama library gets built. And when that gets built, they're going to put these documents there. They'll maintain them as part of the library. And odds are they don't include nuclear, you know, documentation of anything. Was that not the most nonsensical argument? But one that a lot of his supporters will latch on to. The number was actually three million, was what claimed, three million documents. And uh, there, is about that, there, are, there are about that many in storage in Chicago, overseen by the National Archives. Barack Obama has no control over any of it. He had, you know, as they were part of his presidency, and, and that's, the, that's the connection he has to them now. And all the secret stuff and all that. You know, they have made it a point to say that's in Washington, D.C., where it's supposed to be. Uh, but, you know, what else? Oh, and, and, and another one that's just started. Well, what, the, the old what, what about is, that's one of my favorites too, David. What about Hillary Clinton's emails? Here we go again with that. I mean, we're talking about the Attorney General of the United States investigating her, uh, the Inspector General at the State Department investigated her, the FBI exhaustively investigated her, uh, six congressional uh, committees run by Republicans, I might add, investigated her. And they found out, uh, although she acted recklessly uh, by by, have, by sending some emails with some stuff on her private server instead of on the one provided for by the government, that she did not break any laws, and they just won't let it go. You know what, David? Let's let Trump sit in front of a congressional committee for 11 hours. What do you think? Think he'd enjoy well, that like he did? 
another thing that makes that argument so ridiculous is for years they chanted lock her up. They said that that private uh-huh. server and that email, those emails on that server were grounds for her to be incarcerated. Well, mm-hmm. if you believe that and you say that these documents are the same thing, then you can only come to one conclusion. You know, I mean, if you really believe that line of thinking, it's just total nonsense. Now let's get into the, you know, where, how does this affect the politics? And from what I've seen, it looks like all the regular suspects are defending him, you know, be it the media sources like Fox News and OAN and, you know, Breitbart for that, you know, and all the congressional and senators that support him. They're all, you know, still on his side. No one's left him. I think a lot of that is fear. There are the true believers like Marjorie Taylor Greene, but a lot of that is fear of the base, fear of the Trumpists. And so I don't know that no no matter what comes out, this is going to hurt him. What do you think? Yeah, there's three possibilities. It hurts him, it helps him, or things stay essentially the same. I'm thinking. Well, let's go. Let's go through them, Tim. Let's let's. let's okay, you say it helps him. How would it help him? To, I mean, oh, well, actually, well, Tim, let's well, put a pin in that. We'll, could, we'll get to it, it, it Tim. Could, we're ready to. We're ready okay. to head out uh, to out west, and I want to welcome into the Kudzu Vine for the first time our guest, uh, Alex Diaz. Welcome, Alex. Hello. How are you doing? Um, I'm oh, glad good. to be on your good show. Good to have you on. Yeah. yeah. Well, well, Alex, um, I, you know, you're an expert on Nevada politics, so we're going to get to that. But before that, just tell our listeners anything about your bio and your political bio you'd like to. Okay. I'll tell you a little bit about my political bio. Um, so, so about, so yeah, about me. So, yeah, a few years ago, I graduated from UNLV with a bachelor's in political science. Before that, I was involved in, uh, you know, and, you know, just casually in political campaigns, and that's what got me interested in politics. And since graduating in 2018, you know, I just had jobs, you know, not necessarily related to politics, you know, essentially just to, you know, put a roof and, you know, roof over my head and, you know, food on my table. And But, you know, I do politics on Twitter is, you know, you know, kind of like, you know, polit- you know, being like a political entrepreneur, as you will, you know, just, you know, just that's that's what my passion is. Yeah, well, let's just kind of get the lay of the land in Nevada. Or Nevada, Nevada. I'll be honest. I grew up my whole life saying Nevada, and I know more people in the state say Nevada, so I'll try my best to, um, you know, do that right. Any idea where that um, distinction came from? Nevada, Nevada. The whole Nevada. Yeah, the whole Nevada and Nevada. Well, the way that locals say it here is Nevada, and. And uh, I noticed that people from, you know, east, you know, east of Texas, you know, east of New Mexico, they tend to say Nevada. I don't know why that is, but, um, you know, it's, it's just, it's just the way things are. Um, you know, it's kind of like Colorado and versus Colorado. It's just, it's just a matter of who you talk to and where they grew up. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. I, I'll tell you this. Sometimes it's hard to take things out of people's vocabulary. I listened to Raphael Warnock's book, and we call in Georgia, our city in southwest Georgia, Albany. But, of course, the capital of New York is Albany, and he was talking about the capital of New York in his book. 
um, his biography, and he said all Benny. I was like, yeah, he's definitely a Georgian, a South Georgian at that. Um, so I understand how that goes. Well, let's kind of get into the lay of the land of the state. Um, my mm-hmm. understanding is if you took away Las Vegas and Reno, that Nevada would be the least populated state in the country. Is that kind of the geography of the state? <laughs> you got that right, sir. You take away you take away Clark County, you take away Washoe County, you end up with a very, you know, unpopulated state. Possibly possibly smaller than Wyoming. Like I you know, I, I don't know the number on top of my head, but I can tell you that Washoe and Clark make up ninety percent of Nevada's population. Ninety. Wow. So you take up so let's say Nevada's a population of about three million. You take away three, you know ninety percent of uh, three million, and well, you know you you end up with a pretty you know pretty small figure. So yeah, well, so, well, yeah. so then let's get into the, the politics of that. Is so if you win Las Vegas and break even in Reno, or even I That's guess right. vice versa. Does it really even matter what the last 10% of the state does, or is it math from that point in which you have different scenarios? So I've, I've done the math. You know, in the last election, uh, the rules made up about 13% of the vote, and they're very Republican. It's like R plus, you know, 38, R plus 40, um, you know, voting by the Republican by more than 40 percentage points. Um, so... So the way that so the way that you know Democrats win is essentially you know you carry Clark County by more than seven points and you either tie in Washoe or you win in Washoe. Uh, Catherine Cortez Masto she she lost Washoe but she lost Washoe by only by a point but she won Clark by like I don't know it was like fourteen points so was it fourteen or twelve I can't remember but anyways that was enough for her to to win the state despite, you know, um, you know, only winning one county. Mm. Yeah. So, well, that kind of gives us a, a lay of the geography. One more question for now, and I'm going to pass it to Kim, then it may come back to me, and that is about your Senate race. We did Senate rankings the other week on the Kudzu Vine, and all three of us agreed that of all the states – actually, we said of all the states, the most likely to flip was Pennsylvania – um, but that's a non-incumbent. But of the incumbents, the one most likely to flip, and don't get offended at us, tell us why we're wrong, was your state of Nevada, more so than Arizona, more so than Georgia, uh, more so than, um, I'm trying to think, of, or maybe some of the Democratic-held states or the Republican-held states. Um, tell me okay. why I'm either right or wrong in that Nevada is maybe the key Senate race. Uh, well, I would say that, you know, if you look at the other Senate races, like the candidate quality is just a business. Like, uh, you know, like Blake Masters never held elected office, neither has Herschel Walker, neither has Dr. Oz. Um, so, you know, essentially what, you know, as a Republican, what you would ideally want is somebody who has held elected office before, you know, you know, think of somebody, you know, who's pretty much tried and proven, you know, like Brian Kemp, you know. You know, he's, he's already governor, and he's likely going to be reelected. Um, so, so yeah, the issue for the Republicans in those states is that they didn't, you know, that the base didn't necessarily elect somebody with elected experience. 
Um, so, so that's what makes Nevada a little bit differently. Adam Laxalt was attorney general, even, even though he did lose, uh, the election for governor in, uh, 2018. Um, like in, in comparison with other Republican candidates, you know, you know, from I've seen in other states, yeah, he's, he, 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 you know, he doesn't seem objectively that bad. Um, and neither does, does Joe Lombardo, who's Clark County Sheriff. So, so I don't think it's necessarily wrong to say that Nevada's vulnerable, but, uh, but yeah, that's, I think that's what makes, what makes it different than Arizona. Um, because, you know, in Arizona, you got Mark Kelly, who's an astronaut versus, um, you, you know, and Katie Hobbs, who's facing Carrie Lake, who's just like, you know, talking about election conspiracies all the time. Yeah, I mean, those are like three dynamic candidates, the astronaut, the the preacher, and I say the pro wrestler, even though John Fetterman, uh, you know, never wrestled. He looks right out of simple casting, um, for sure. Well, I'm going to pass it to Tim, but then Tim may let me ask some more questions at the end. Tim? Good evening, Mr. Diaz, and thank you for being with us tonight. Yes, sir. Uh, the Republican nominee for attorney general in your state said that yeah. the Democratic incumbent attorney general, and I quote, should be hanging from a crane. What in the world prompted that? <laughs> uh, you know, some, you know, some candidates, you know, you know, I don't necessarily know what's running through their mind. You know, especially in the case of Seagal Chata. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing her name right, but uh, uh-huh. but but anyways, uh, you know, I I personally think it's uncalled for. You know, for implying that you know that the first African American Attorney General should be hanging from a crane. Uh, you know, yeah. personally opposed to right. the uh, I think she's just saying it because I don't think she has like the uh, political tact. Um, and I, you know, it's, it's just very offensive. I'm not sure what the attorney general did to make her angry, but I just think it's inappropriate to react that way. Yeah. So, uh, well, I was a, a, a follow-up question on that. You know, a lot of a lot of candidates around the country in the in the Republican Party running for attorney general, secretaries of state, stuff like that, are election deniers, and they want to do things like decertify the 2020 election. And I was just wondering if this Republican uh, was in that camp, or do you know? So, in a, so the election denial? Um, uh huh. Into the election denial stuff. And so, so are we just talking about like just like the whole Nevada Republican Party? Or are we just talking about a few candidates in general? Just because? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we um at at any rate <laughs> moving along to another uh, thing. Um Dana Titus has been in Congress for quite a while. And you know there's been redistricting in your state and it apparently has made her district a little dicey. Uh what yeah. do her chances look like this year? Um, so essentially, uh, the Nevada Democrats have crafted a map that, um, they, they built a map that isn't necessarily like the most optimal for them. Like, uh, you know, I've, I've said before on my Twitter, like 
if they were as, I don't know, as, um, as brutal as, I don't know, Illinois Democrats, what they would have done is that they would have drawn a map stretching from North Las Vegas to Reno. And then, <laughs> would, yeah, they would have drawn a, it, you know, that's, that's like a six hour drive, but they would have drawn a map from North Las Vegas to Reno. And then they would have split, you know, split little parts that would have kept their seats very pretty safe uh, in terms of a red wave. So the way that they drew the map, I'm not sure what they were trying to accomplish here. Maybe essentially, maybe they thought that essentially the Nevada Democratic Party is struggling with, uh, with you know, with like socialists and, you know, moderate Democrats. I'm not sure if this map was intentionally drawn to, you know, essentially ensure more moderates get elected. Um but by doing that, they make these seats a lot more, Repub- you know, more Republican than usual. So, Dina Titus, you know, I think Dina Titus, um, I think, uh, I think she has political acumen and, and skills. You know, a lot of people, you know, tend to uh, dismiss it. But you know, she ran a close race against uh, Jim Gibbons, uh, you know, back in 2006. Even though she lost that one, she did well. I remember she did well in the suburbs, right when the Nevada suburbs weren't quite ready to vote for a Democrat yet. So even though she lost, she did better than, than let's say, uh, than Carter's son did. Carter's son ran for, uh, for uh, Senate that year. Uh, mm-hmm. And he lost, he lost by, you know, he got whooped by John Ensign that year. So, yeah, mm-hmm. I think Dean Titus still, she, she can still pull it off, but I personally think that the most vulnerable House Democrat is Susie Lee. Oh, Okay. What what district is she? Uh, Susie Lee is in the uh, Nevada Third Congressional District, and uh, third. And okay. Dina Titus is in the first. Right. Okay. Yeah. Now, Latino voter turnout, of course, is is very important in in your state, and it's expected, according to a lot of experts, to increase this year by between five and ten percent. Over the last midterms in 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 2018, what is driving the increase? That's that's pretty good increase. What's driving the increase in Hispanic turnout in your assessment? I would say that there's a lot of things uh, going for an increasing, you know, voting in the state. So mm-hmm. you know, not, so not so long ago, the the state legislature and through and through initi- and through ballot initiatives, there there's been changes in the laws that uh, that essentially you, you now have motor voter laws. So essentially, it registers every time a person goes to the DMV and they're eligible to vote, they're going to be registered unless somebody declines to be registered. So they'll be registered as a nonpartisan. So hmm. yeah, automatic voting laws uh, essentially. Oh, so for anybody, okay. For anybody who is eligible. Okay. Uh, uh, I wanted to ask you one more question, and mm-hmm. and then I will ship it back over to David. You mentioned Susie Lee over in the 3rd District, mm-hmm. and I believe you said this. Nevada, 3rd District, mm-hmm. is exactly the kind of area that will split its tickets between Democrats and Republicans. Is is that district just that evenly split between Democrats and is that a fifty-fifty district or what's going on there? I mean, there's a Democratic advantage in that district, but uh-huh. I'm just thinking of the kind of voter that lives there. They tend to be uh, they tend to be wealthier, not necessarily 
not necessarily, you know, have a college degree, but think of people that own, like, car dealerships or, uh, uh-huh. you know, they own restaurants. Uh, I'm uh-huh. just thinking, you, you know, like, uh, you know, like higher-income people that, you know, that make good money, but, uh, you, you know, that they're, you know, they're, they're business people fundamentally, and I think, and I think not necessarily academics, and I think uh, that makes them a little bit more persuadable to vote between uh, Democrats and Republicans. All right. And I appreciate that. And with that, I'm going to send it back over to David for some more questions. David? Yes. um, Alex, uh, our our co-host Catherine's not on tonight, but I do know that she uh, would probably want to ask about this issue because it's been in the news so much. We know Nevada in many ways may be one of the most libertarian states in the nation. I mean, y'all have legalized gambling and legalized prostitution. And um, the rest of the country up until a few weeks ago had legalized reproductive rights. The Supreme Court made a decision. Obviously, it wasn't a case that was, you know, based in Nevada. But nevertheless, it does impact Uh the state, that being a very libertarian state. Um, How much do you expect that ruling to affect both your Senate, governor, and um, congressional elections? Um. You know, before, you know, before the Supreme Court ruling came out, you know, I thought, you know, I, I personally expressed that I thought like the the races here, because of the way that the economy was, you know, just like two months ago, you know, I was like, you know what, it looks like this is going to favor the Republicans. But, you know, I'm kind of back to, you know, kind of like on the top of, you know, on, on the top of because, you know, a lot, because a lot of, um, a lot of voters here, you know, they tend to be very libertarian on this. And, uh, and they finally, and, you know, not only do we have people that believe in, like, economic freedom, but they very personally believe in, in personal freedom. So I think this issue, you know, you know, you know, Adam Laxalt was caught saying that he thought Roe was a joke. And uh, I'm pretty sure opposition is already working on to, to strain that because, um, you know, the, the, the I think the pivotal voter here in Nevada are like those suburban women, you know, like, you know, like the, the ones that own restaurants and, and, you know, and whatever. I think those are the kind that are going to determine the election, you know, like the, because they're fundamentally persuadable. And if Catherine Cortez Masto can say it's like, hey, these reproductive rights are under attack, then, you know, she has a shot at retaining those kind of voters. Hmm. Yes, and, and I, I visited your state. Back in April, first time I'd ever been there, uh, went to Las Vegas, enjoyed very much. So we took some tours outside of Las Vegas because we're not big gamblers or anything like that. So we went to see some of the Western sites. And when we went there, we got to see the water situation firsthand as we drove by, you know, Lake Mead, uh, the Colorado River, r- drove by, um, I want to say the lake on the area that's the other upper part of the Colorado that's kind of near Vegas, but more um, yeah. on the Arizona Utah border, um, mm-hmm. Lake Powell. And I saw yeah. the, the water situation firsthand. And and actually, one of the tour guides talked about it. And I've also seen, you know, reports. CBS I think does a really good job covering it. It looks dire, or it looks like it's going to be dire soon if something doesn't happen. Since we don't know how to make it, you know, snowfall more in the um, wintertime, um, how much is that water situation playing into 
election issues almost divided like the rest of the country. And, you know, so many people just have their heads in the sand and not looking at these environmental changes. Uh, we are very, like, you know, as a resident and you know, knowing other people that have lived in Nevada for uh, for a while, you know, by a while I mean people that have lived here at least 10 years because, you know, a lot of people come in and out of the state. Uh, we are aware that, uh, you know, that the drought situation is dire and, and Las Vegas and Clark County have done a lot to uh, to uh, to save as much water as they can. I'm not sure if you're aware, but we have our, I mean, we reprocess our wastewater. I mean, not, and I mean, it's like a very thorough, um, you know, very thorough filtering. So essentially any water that goes down, you know, like a drain, you know, it could be like a toilet, it could be like a sink, you know, like a storm drain, you know, like, you know, the ones on the streets. That goes all to a reprocessing plant, and that is deeply filtered because uh, uh, because of the Colorado River Compact. We don't get that much water, so we literally refilter uh, essentially the water we use. Mm. And yeah, and the and the city and county have thought of uh, banning grass. Like they're they're literally going to ban grass that is like you know that doesn't be, because you know. It takes a lot of water to to grow grass, so they're planning on saving that. Wow! Yeah, it, it, it was it's really something to see, and it, and it I don't think it's going to be just a western problem, but obviously it's a huge you know western problem for the states of Nevada, Arizona, Utah, um, into California. Um, so I, I just I think people need to look at it, and and of course figure out ways we can help y'all, but then say, if we don't do something, this could be an issue other places. I mean, if I was in Mississippi, you know, got a little more leeway. Um, yeah. But, it's, yeah, it's interesting. It, it's, if you don't have a, a big river running through your state, it could be an issue. And it's interesting you talked about Mississippi because one thing Arizona legislators have talked about in the past is to, di- is to divert excess floodwaters from the Mississippi. To uh, the Colorado, you know, to essentially built like some kind of, you know, like canal or dike that was there. So, uh, yeah, I, I've heard that idea. And, and, and the Continental Divide and the amount of mileage, it sounds like a bigger deal. It seems like, and I hate to say this, all the extra people that just show up in these western cities for no good reason probably just need to show up in Mississippi and Alabama and Kentucky and western Tennessee and Arkansas where there's water. Um, instead of just, you know, heading out to wherever because they think it'd be fun. Um, have a yeah. plan unless you really need to be there. Or you have long-term roots there for folks like yourself can continue to stay and live and thrive. Um, I, well, Alex, I hear- uh, this has been so fascinating. And, and I'm sure Nevada's going to stay or Nevada's going to stay in the, uh, you know, politics having so many different races. So they get you back again. But until that time, Tell our listeners how they can um, read you on social media. And also, I know you have an election mapping site, so feel free to share that address with our listeners. Sure thing. So you can reach NV, and that is my Twitter handle. So it's at NV. And uh, I also have a website called LasVegasElectionMap.wordpress.com. So, um, so yeah. As it says, Las Vegas election So you can find, you know, my political takes and, you know, the maps that I've made 
um, you know, essentially from the early 1900s to the modern day, you know, with, you know, maps that are typically about Nevada. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, that, that's exciting. And, and, and you know, so it's just such a, a growing and important state because so many states are so far um, left or right that they're not a swing state. And there's a few of us left. And, um, both of our states, Nevada and Georgia, are two of them. So we want to keep calling on you to find out more about these elections, probably maybe one more time before the um, November election, if you're willing. Here thing. I'm willing to talk about, you know, you know, I love talking about Nevada politics. So I'm, I'm down to talk more if, if you're willing to talk more anytime. Absolutely. Thank you, sir. Well, thanks for coming on the show, and I uh, hope you have a good rest of your weekend. Sure thing. You guys have a good week, and thank you for having me. All righty. Thank you. <laughs> All right. That was Alex Diaz, um, Nevada Politics. And um, we I don't know that we've ever talked Nevada Politics specifically, or it's been quite a while if we have. So good to get Alex on the show. Tim, I hated to cut into with Alex earlier because you were probably about to give us some great info. And let's start off right where we left off. How do you think – this FBI raid would politically help Donald Trump. Well, what it will do is what he has been able to do in the past, even like before the uh, 2020 election when the polls were showing that he was just going to get thumped by Biden. He hit the campaign trail uh, having these rallies, and he ginned his base up. If there's one thing Donald Trump knows how to do, is push the right buttons to gin his base up. And uh, the, the, the hope is uh, that, uh, from Trump's perspective, is that it would gin his base up to the point of what I would call overvoting, uh, to make hopeless situations closer and to actually propel quite a few of his pro- preferred candidates in these states around the country, and we know there's at least like 180 of them that are latching on to what Donald Trump believes, uh, running in statewide uh, races, congressional races, and the like around the country. That's a good number of people, and if a good number of them are elected, then that's good for Donald Trump, and it helps set the stage for him in 2024. Uh, a lot there are a lot of people who subscribe to the notion right now, David, that Donald Trump was on the wane, and that this uh, particular issue, if you want to call it that, has uh, brought him back from the political graveyard or from the brink of the political graveyard, and that he is actually on the ascendancy again. I would not go that far, but just the very fact that Trump's gone on offense, especially the first couple of days about this thing, and has driven the narrative, at least before the attorney general spoke, uh, you you see that it's got his base going, sometimes not in good ways, but it's it's got them all ready to go to bat for him now, so we'll see. On this, on this issue, I would claim it hasn't been going in no good ways. But um, but let, I think you're right that I think the, the how it helps him is limited to the Republican primary. And you used to, you could kind of have, you know, how you had one 
kind of, let's just put it like a big snow globe or something. You had pulled to the left of the snow globe, and the right of the American electorate was in there. Now you just have two total different spheres, and, you know, and, and a lot of it, I think, is because how the Republican Party has moved so far outside that you can't describe it in just, you know, general terms. You have to look at just the Republican electorate, and I think he was already ahead with his electorate. I, I think some of the polls – um, I, I don't know that Ron DeSantis's movement would be enough to overtake him anyway, but this did solidify that. It was like we've got to protect Donald at all, you know, cost. And so let's kind of – I want to ask about Ron DeSantis since we brought him up. You know, this would have been his moment to really shed light on this. He could said, look at, look at this mess that's been brought to my state. Look how many good things happen in Florida. But we have people bringing nuclear secrets down here. And he could have made his play to turn the Republican electorate against Donald. Now, it would have been a risk because if it backfired, it would have been done. But if we look at it, let's assume he wins re-election. And I want to see some more polling before I think that's a foregone conclusion. Um, that means he would serve as governor until 2026. If Donald Trump's the nominee in 2024, he loses. Then it's till 2028 till Ron DeSantis could run again. Now he would have, he'd have that two years out of office. But wasn't that kind of like Jeb Bush that had the two years out of office? He wouldn't be in office. That's a little risky plight. He can't run for Senate unless he primaried Rick Scott. Um, because even if Val Demons were to defeat Marco Rubio, that doesn't come up for six years. That would be the same year as 2028. Um, and so the timeline does not work out perfectly for Ron DeSantis other than Donald Trump getting out of the way in 2024 um, you know, to, to, to free him up um, to, to run – you know, right there, and of course, that would be assuming he would win his um, election race. Were you surprised that Ron DeSantis didn't use this moment, and maybe someone else, but I don't think anybody's positioned in that party um, as well as DeSantis to be the not anti-Trump because that sounds like Liz Cheney or something, but the somebody besides Trump. Yeah, well, no, I was not surprised. I, I, If I were playing the percentages or playing out my options, I think the best option for him is, is either to a, uh, express outrage at the FBI's handling of this thing, as a lot of others have, or to just simply say nothing. Uh, he runs a massive risk. By attacking Trump on this, not only for 2024 chances, but if he doesn't get reelected governor, he's done right there. And and he he doesn't need he 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 doesn't need to do this. He can simply wait and see what happens, and whatever's going to happen to Trump is going to take care of itself. So, no, I, yeah, if, I, I if I'm in his shoes, there's no way I would uh, attack Donald Trump right now. And I think you're right about ticking off the base for his, governor, his governor's run. 
because well, it would be, off everybody from the center. It, it would be to the it layout. would be enough, and so it would be enough. It yeah. might be enough in a close race to cost him re-election. He can't afford to bleed out any votes right now. If the recent yeah. polling that we've been looking at is right, it's pretty close race, closer than I certainly thought it would be at this time. Yeah, and then another thing it related is if Donald Trump were to be the nominee in 2024, he's going to pick a different person besides Mike Pence. That might be yeah. the most shocking thing of all if he picked Mike Pence again. And so, therefore, that person might pass everyone else up. Um, you know, let's just say win or lose, um, you know, for the, being the next nominee. I mean, at least that person has to be dealt with in some way even no matter how erratic it will be and it and it probably cannot be ron DeSantis because they both are residents of florida and therefore based on the constitution right you would sacrifice the votes of florida and of course right. Donald trump could you know send a postcard to new jersey and say you know that he's from new jersey or new york um you know bedminster or whatever trump tower new york or whatever if you want to do it real quick but he seems right. to be want to, you know, put his Florida roots in. Plus, I, I don't yeah, think and, he'd pick DeSantis anyway. He'd be afraid of being over. Yeah, yeah. But because I, I was going to mention it, he does not personally like Ron DeSantis. He thinks DeSantis has been kind of disloyal because, quote, I made Ron DeSantis. That that Trump has said that in those words himself. He is just waiting for DeSantis to say anything negative about him so he can just pile on and pound him. Because if we're talking about DeSantis being an option to Trump in 2024, Donald Trump has certainly heard that. It's not no great secret that if it's not Trump, it's probably DeSantis in 2024. Of course, Trump don't want to talk about anybody but Trump. So, again, DeSantis would be well served not to say one negative thing about Donald Trump during this time. Either stay out of it or attack the federal government for their handling of it or something like that. That would be the two political options that would get him the most mileage right now. All right, we got three minutes. And so I'm going to ask the easy, quick question, and then I am going to ask the long, complicated question. But we're only going to answer the first one. Uh, the easy question, Tim, is this story going to be a continuing storyline for the weeks to come on the Kudzu Vine and every other political news source? Gosh, gosh, yes. This is this is this is the political equivalent of. Uh, Mass, massive storm. Um, uh, this man, <laughs> we've not seen yeah. anything well, like this. Of course, it's going to be that. Well, I, I knew the answer to that too. I'm surprised you didn't call me a dummy for even asking it. But I wanted to ask it because this leads into question two. And question two is, and we kind of touched on this, but we never began to answer it. So this is kind of the homework question where you and me got to think on it. If Catherine listens to this or we text her, we got to get her in on this, maybe even some guests, who knows. Why did Donald Trump take these um, documents? I still don't know the why 
And I don't know that anybody truly knows the why, other than him and anybody okay. put in his inner circle. Yeah. That knows. And, and, and so we're gonna we're gonna find out. We're gonna discuss that why I'm sure in the weeks to come. Yeah, and and a, a lot of very 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 smart political people that I've seen on network television all this week have been asked that question by the host of some of these shows. Um, yeah. And none of them has a definitive answer because their answer is basically, well, how do you get into Donald Trump's head and figure anything out? I mean, it's just who knows what this guy was thinking, if he was thinking, or, or anything. You know, maybe it'll all come out, but with Donald Trump generally, the whole story just doesn't come out because it's just two way out there generally. Yeah. I, I'm hoping we probably get some good insight even before next week. And then from there, but that's the biggest question. I told you the two things I think motivates Donald Trump. And um, this doesn't necessarily fit neatly into either one of those that I see. Maybe it does. And we'll find that out too. Well, uh, uh, thanks again for Alex Diaz for coming on the show. We're excited next week. We'll get Catherine back, and then our guest for the second time onto the Cozy Vine is going to be Logan Phillips of Race to the um, WH, which, of course, stands for White House. Not only are we going to talk to um, Logan about political forecasting, not the White House for 2024, but Senate races, governor's races, maybe congressional. Also, Logan on his site has launched a new NFL prediction tool. And we're going to talk a tiny little bit about that. Uh, Tim, I think you and I are going to probably have more of the questions in that genre than Catherine. Yes, but until then, definitely. it's been the Kudzu Vine. Night, everybody. Good night. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Will a strong and united America still be a force for freedom and prosperity around the world? America has created the longest peacetime economic expansion in our history. We are the heirs of that first Revolution. Good common sense and sound judgment of the American people and their essential love of justice.